All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast. This is Cameron Hager, and I am here with the one, <laughs> the only, Hannah Cosworth. <laughs> she didn't Sorry, know I didn't know if yeah. I was supposed to say her viewer. Yeah, she didn't know she was supposed to say her name. That was my bad. I didn't prep her. <laughs> but Hannah is here nonetheless, and uh, yeah. we are excited to talk about, as you might have guessed from the title, uh, a really hard subject, mm-hmm. but a subject that's really important. Um, before we jump into that, Hannah, give us give us the like thirty second story of Hannah's last two years. Last two years, yeah. Um, Door of Hope has only been part of one of those years, so it's probably good to get some background. Um, yeah, I've been in Chicago for the last like ten years, but um, most previously I, or most recently, I was doing. I was a dean of housing at Moody Bible Institute, so uh, a lot of my experience so far has been with students um, in the college ministry world, so working on a, a couple different um, Christian college campuses, and then just kind of mentoring residence life, uh, like RAs and GRAs and things like that. So yeah, and then about a year, well, a little bit over a year ago now, um, my before that, I had always kind of wanted to do church ministry, and so specifically women's ministry. And so, um, yeah, I had a couple churches reaching out and it just felt like, wow, this feels like it's from the Lord. Maybe I should listen to this. Um, and so sure enough, I started applying for some women's ministry positions and door of hope came on the scene. And at first it just kind of was like a random online applicant, but the more that I read and the more that, um, I kind of like went through that process, it just became like a really beautiful place where I could imagine like being my, having it be my church home. So yeah, so I came, I started at Door of Hope in June of last year. So it's been just over a year now. Right on. Yeah. It's well, it's fun. been a huge blessing to have you on the team. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it really has been. It's been great. Um, okay. So today we're going to talk about pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's favorite subject, not a super comfortable subject. Mm. And we might just say from the get go, um, it's not going to be a graphic conversation by any means, but you know, if you're a parent, you happen to be listening to this with your kid in all honesty, it's probably good for them to (laughs) to listen and to start having frank conversation about these Mm. things, depending on the age, of course. Uh, but if you don't want to wade into these waters just yet, uh, maybe you should turn this off. Mm -hmm. And it feels pretty cool to be able to say that about one of these podcasts. (laughs) Never gotten to say that before. Um, But yeah, we're going to be talking about pornography and specifically um, kind of strategies and and a gospel lens for how to battle pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, We hope that this is helpful, A, for the person who's struggling with pornography, but also... um, also people who are coming alongside others who are struggling with it, be it a spouse, a friend, um, a member of your community group, whatever. Uh, we hope this will help you as, as a, a friend and someone who loves a struggler uh, to kind of be able to help them and come alongside them in a way that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably other versions of this we could do uh, that we might do, you know, more aimed at how do you do if you're say a grieving spouse whose, whose spouse is struggling with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a worthy angle. Um, this might provide a little bit of insight, but, um, that's probably mostly a subject for another day. Uh, so we'll start here. Yeah. So, um, maybe we should start with just kind of like 
what brought this about? Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And Cameron, I know you were like the, you had the first idea of, of recording a podcast. So yeah. What, what brought this up? Yeah. Well, sadly in our culture, it's easy to assume, um, that lots of people are struggling with this, but, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I do assume that, um, but this past uh, season when we were working through the book of Galatians in chapter five, Josh just did a little kind of aside, um, sexual sin, pornography, and it just ended up unearthing a lot of conversations just pastorally around the church. And we just came to realize, man, yes, to, to almost no one's surprise, this is a massive issue, even mm-hmm. in our church. And we don't do anyone any favors by being, uh, unwilling to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we, we thought this, this could be a good avenue to start the conversation. All these conversations are already happening in private all around the church, but, uh, to have kind of a centralized conversation and resource seemed like a good idea. And I think I would just add like, um, like Cameron said, we have these conversations a lot in private. Um, but I think there's some value to like letting those conversations happen in a public manner so people can see this is something that, that we're willing to talk about. It's a safe topic to be able to talk about here. And so, yeah, I kind of see it. I've been calling it a pastoral moment, um, Mm. just Mm -hmm. for us to be able to put a podcast out there. And maybe this is just kind of the first introduction to some of the resources that we're going to talk about, but yeah, yeah, kind of a pastoral moment. Maybe it'd be helpful to talk to about like, why are we here? Why Cameron? Why Hannah? Yeah. Well, um, gosh, in a, in a culture as porn saturated as ours is, there's probably no one listening that hasn't been touched by it in, in one way or another. Um, and certainly me and Hannah both have been touched by it in different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. as, as much as it bums me out to say it, um, I have a significant past struggle with pornography. Um, I struggled to the point where I'd, I'd probably characterize it as an addiction, Mm -hmm. basically for all of high school until about midway through college. Um, so just kind of know the crushing defeat of, of thinking it's sin, believing it's sin, believing Jesus wants better for me, uh, but just feeling unable, um, and in some ways unwilling to, to do what it takes to get out of it. And so there's a lot of you listening that that's your story. You're the, you're the struggler, either you used to struggle, you do struggle, maybe you can't even imagine an end to your struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we hope that that perspective is kind of represented here. And then for Hannah, I mean, I don't know, what's, what's your encounter with porn? Um, I mean, first I just want to say to Cameron, thanks so much for being willing to just like come out and say that. Cause I do think it's such a, um, I mean, shame and isolation is like such a part of this conversation. And so when we're willing, even like as leaders to say that, I think it's just a really beautiful example of walking in the light. So um, yeah, my, my story is a little bit different though. Um, pornography has never been something that I personally have struggled a ton with. I was just really blessed in the way that I grew up and the parents that I have that we talked openly about sexuality. We talked, um, really vulnerably about that. And we never, that just wasn't something that I necessarily was like introduced to, um, until when I was in college ministry, um, I started just having a lot of students that were struggling with pornography, both male and female. So most of my conversations about pornography have been, um, one-on-one with students struggling, um, male and female. And I think that kind of, uh, 
it's also helpful to say here, um, part of the reason why I thought um, it'd be good to be a part of this and why Cameron invited me into this um, is just because I think all too often we think of pornography as a, as a men's struggle, something that it's just, um, yeah, something that the, that the uh, male brain struggles with. But um, what we're seeing is just more and more and more, even just personally, I feel like I've seen in the stories I've talked about with women, um, it is just as much and, and more and more so becoming a women's struggle. And so sexual brokenness in general is a male and female um, issue, but now pornography has very much become that as well. So yeah, I think just a story from my experience too is um, when I was at Wheaton College, I came in and we'd done a pornography, a, a discussion about pornography and fighting pornography every year for the past like 12 years for the men. And when I came in, I don't know if it was my RD or if it was me, but um, we both just kind of said like, why aren't we offering this same thing for women? And so we decided to do it. We kind of pioneered it and it was cool. It was exciting. Um, and while we were doing it, we, we decided to do this survey of like, why are these women here? Um, and we put, you know, a checklist of like, I'm here because of a, spou- a spouse, I'm here because of a um, romantic partner or my brother or whatever, my dad. But the last box was, I'm here for myself. And it was easily a majority, but um, almost almost um, every single person checked, I'm here for myself. So it just kind of like proved even in that college dorm, in that setting, this is a struggle for women as well. So that's part of why we're having a, a female voice here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so if you're listening, um, we think it's just important whether you're male, female, single, married, mm. whatever your stage of life, uh, whatever your background, um, we want we want to try to normalize this conversation. And, and by normalize, I want to be very clear. I don't mean, hey, every, you know, sometimes there's this attitude that creeps in like, oh, you know, everybody struggles with porn. It's not a big deal. Mm. That's not what we mean. It, yeah. it is a big deal. It's a it's a grievous sin to the Lord, um, and against other people as well. Mm. Um, but by normalize, we mean we need to make this something that's safe to talk about. It feels icky. It feels private. It feels weird. Uh, but for men and women, we need to say it's okay to own your struggle. And if you're struggling, you don't do anyone yourself, most included. Uh, by hiding in the shadows, yeah. um, sin just grows in power when it's in secrecy. And so we, we just kind of want to model, like we can talk about this. It's okay to talk about it. And yeah. uh, that's the only way we're going to find healing as a community. Yeah. Not only okay, but yeah, t- I think we both would say like, it's necessary. You have to talk about it. Yeah. We absolutely. have to bring it up. Absolutely. Well, maybe we should start. And as always, we've got a, we've got a document, um, mm. that, that has some of this stuff in kind of short paragraphs in writing and then some links to some good resources, things to read software. We'll talk about some of that as we go, mm-hmm. but that's there. Hopefully you can find it, um, on the door of hope website. So we're going to throw out a handful of kind of proven strategies that we think, you know, not everything is applicable to every person, but taken together, a, a, most people find some combination of these strategies really important for overcoming a, a struggle with, with pornography. Um, one of the ones, one of the one we'll start with in our conversation is just this idea that sometimes you need to take time to learn about pornography, learn about the evils that it brings into the world in order to properly cultivate the right kind of heart that leads to repentance. Mm. And I want to be very clear, this isn't the only piece of healing, but this is a significant one. Um, 
And maybe we first just start with the pervasiveness of it. I mean, I mean, we live in a completely porn saturated market. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact, I mean, since the rise of the smartphone and, and just the unlimited access that most people in the modern world carry around on them 24 mm-hmm. seven, uh, it's just been given foothold to grow. Like it never has been before <laughs> in human history. Yeah. And the PDF Cameron made a really good point. Um, that a lot of the um, historical and kind of just cultural things that maybe prevented us from from engaging in pornography before have have disintegrated. So things like just the cultural kind of faux pas that pornography was. And this is a little funny, but I was just watching an episode of Growing Pains, mm. um, which totally points this out. So Kirk Cameron, we've been talking a lot. <laughs> we've been talking <laughs> a, a lot about Kirk Cameron time. <laughs> lately, but. It's this episode where um, one of the characters um, stumbles upon a, por- a porno- por- sorry, pornographic hotline. Um, and just the kind of like tone of the episode was this really horrified, like, oh my goodness, what's happening? And granted, there were some things that maybe would have been different. Um, but it's just so interesting to compare that to, I was just reading uh, Struthers book on wired for, in- or wired-, wired for Intimacy, and he's referencing Friends, which in the in this episode... Um, they stumble upon a pornographic and it's, it's kind of like this like funny, hilarious episode or it's supposed to be, I should say. Um, and just the different like tones of these two different shows mm. and the, you know, however many years has, have passed, it just yeah. kind of felt like it showed that disintegration of the cultural like um, uh, posture towards pornography. So yeah, that was a really good point. Yeah, there's literally nothing in our broader culture that's like sca- providing a scaffolding or a deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, even you know the idea that a couple of decades ago you'd have to go seek out a store with a magazine or mm-hmm. something like that or a videotape. Like now it's completely private, completely anonymous, and completely accessible twenty four seven. Yeah, it's, on it's multiple scary. devices too. Yeah, which is crazy. And it goes without saying. I mean, one piece of learning about the evil of pornography is just going straight to the biblical sexual ethic. I mean. Uh, Jesus himself probably sums it up best in the Sermon on the Mount when he, he says, look, if you're right, he says, look, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, take extreme measures. Like if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for your hand to go than for your whole self to be lost. Um, mm. And so Jesus takes takes the Old Testament ethic of, you know, marital fidelity and he drives it down even further into like even the heart inclination toward lust Mm. is a big big deal Mm. and so we just want to lay that biblical admonition out first it's biblically this is a this is a serious matter but sometimes we get confused on the why like like why is jesus so harsh on lust like isn't it sort of a harmless or uh insignificant struggle Mm mm-hmm what would you sorry. say to that? Sorry, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's totally insignificant. Um, yeah, and I think uh, the first step that um, we've been talking about is cultivating genuine heartbreak. I think um, it kind of answers that question of um, sexual sin and lust. There's so many facets of why um, it becomes so destructive to us. So I love, uh, Cameron has kind of laid out like uh kind of a cultural world at large global perspective, but then there's also the relational damage that it does. And also even just the personal individual Mm -hmm. damage that it can cause. Um, 
Um, and I think that also ties in like the spiritual damage that it causes between us and the Lord. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, um, lust and sexual sin and general sexual brokenness is, it's so dear to the heart of Jesus because it is so holistic. It's, it's a body, mind, soul, um, act. So, mm. and I think that's also why it becomes so addictive, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about some of those, you know, those different levels of global, relational and personal. Yeah. How do we see the heartbreak there? Yeah. So globally, and we've got some links to some good articles and chapters of books and things that, that kind of make this case more fully, but I mean, it's no, it's an open secret that the pornography industry actively fuels um, mm-hmm. all kinds of sex trafficking, violence, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the performers in pornographic videos have been trafficked or tricked or coerced or forced into it. Um, you combine that with just the well-documented sort of growing, man, it just things start getting really uncomfortable when you start talking about it. We have to talk about growing brutality mm-hmm. of the pornography the sexual acts that are depicted. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's enslaving people and enslaving them in, in hideously cruel uh, and violent ways um, commodified for other people's enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I listened to a... Um, when I was in the kind of higher ed world, we would have every year a Title IX um, a presentation to students. And so um, without going into Title IX at all... <laughs> Um, basically it was kind of the, um, in an effort for us to make our college campuses a place that is safe. Um, we had this man come, his name was John Faubert and he did, um, a lot of really, really great research on the topic of, um, sexual violence, but specifically lately his, his research has been a lot more on pornography and it's been, it was fascinating to listen to him talk about the relationship between sexual violence and pornography. And as we've seen pornography escalate in its violent nature, we've also seen like sexual or uh, sexual violence escalate on, on campuses. Yeah. So, you know, there's, it's not a one-to-one tie there, but, um, I don't think it is insignificant that the, the more violent our pornography grows to be, we see it, you know, played out all over the place. Yeah. And this is also an argument for parents, any parents listening, um, to talk to your kids about sex earnestly, openly, mm-hmm. and, and early yeah. from an early age. Uh, because so part of what makes this so sad is that children, when they don't hear, have a safe context to talk about sex and what, what a biblical vision of sex, a God honoring vision of sex looks like, um, they turn to Google yeah. and when they turn to Google, they find this stuff, mm. they find violence and they find a gross misrepresentation of what God had designed when he created sex to be good and to be beautiful and to be self-sacrificial between covenant covenant spouses. Totally. Um, yeah, I was listening to another <laughs> presentation from higher ed. Um, William Struthers wrote the book wired for intimacy and most of that book focuses on the male brain. Um, but lately his research has been a lot more on the female brain. And so he did a presentation and talked about, um, when women are watching pornography, a lot of times like what they're actually watching shows us that, I mean, they're watching women, they're, they're learning from these women, Mm. what it means to be sexual, what it means to be a sexual being and how horrifying that is to like think that that's where we're being educated. Um, I don't know. It just breaks my heart. So every time someone in, you know, cozy Portland, Oregon 
clicks on a pornographic video. They don't have to they don't have to buy it, but they do the a free one that has ad revenue. They're supporting an industry that's abusing men and women, enslaving men and women. Uh, it's it's providing resources to an industry that's re-educating men, women, and children about what sex is and how it ought to function. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could say much more about this, but those are just a few of the ways this is this is crippling the world mm-hmm. <laughs> and inflicting deep deep damage all across the world yeah so if that doesn't break your heart enough then you can also <laughs> focus on the relational uh, damage that that pornography causes um and one of the things that i wrote down is just kind of the dehumanizing and objectifying nature it just kind of transforms your brain mm-hmm um, to think of every being as a sexual being first and foremost. Yeah. And then it makes, um, I think, uh, a lot of the research shows that um, pornography quickly transforms your brain to believe and to see other human beings as objects for your sexual desire. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the like process of um, looking at pornography and being sexually aroused by it is like a objectifying process. Yeah. Yeah, and it it cripples people's uh, ability. I mean, well, let's say first of all, I mean, the damage relationally it does to a spouse mm-hmm. or or to a you know a romantic partner to discover that the person that they love is is turning to this stuff is just immense. Again, yeah. we, we'll talk more about that another time. But that is a huge, huge piece of this puzzle mm-hmm. um, that we have to acknowledge. It causes relational devastation for the people that, that know you and love you. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it, it can like, in addition to the kind of training and taste shaping nature that we've already kind of discussed a little bit, it can really hinder, um, say a, a, a married couple's ability to connect sexually. And it just makes me think of, uh, and I meant to re- reread the study and I didn't. So if I butcher this, <laughs> email me that's fine but uh the broad strokes of this there was a study done with lab rats and they essentially mm. uh took these rats and they put them in a little cage and there was a little button a little lever the the rats could press and they'd get basically a shot of like dopamine oxytocin um essentially it would be a chimically induced orgasm for the rat mm. it's the first time i've said that sentence on this podcast <laughs> um <laughs> and uh and what they found is that uh over time the rat would just return and return to the button, to the lever, over and over again. And eventually, they lost complete interest in food. They mm-hmm. lost complete interest in water. They lost complete interest, most interestingly, in sex with other rats. They put a female rat in the cage as well that was mm-hmm. in heat. Wow. And the male rat would just continue. Eventually, they were just this this zombified little creature, just endlessly tapping uh the lever in order to get another hit. Um, and these exact same, I mean, this isn't just, whoa, the rats are weird. This is, this is the behaviors that pornography addiction produces in humans as well. The the loss of ability to turn to a spouse. Um, Mm. yeah, that's, that's horrifying. The preference of technology, Mm. the preference of these easy pathways. Um, totally. Which this kind of goes into the individual, um, kind of devastation that it causes as well, but that feels so related to, um, there's a lot of studies that show pornography being related to, um, impotence yeah. like an inability 
um, for men or even women to perform sexually. Yeah. But, um, that was one of the, the Ted talks that Josh referenced in that Galatians study, the mm-hmm. demise of guys. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an individual, but also so relational, um, yeah. damage or destructive aspect of pornography. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that the wired for intimacy book points out as well, he just, he really makes the case that look, sex, sex is designed. He might even be the one that uses this term. Sex is like a glue mm. that's meant to biochemically unite a husband and wife together. Um, the chemicals that are released, uh, in orgasm are meant to bond the two people that are experiencing this together to one another and to mm-hmm. train them to, to go to that person. And so, uh, when you, when you have these chemical experiences through returning to a computer screen or your phone or whatever, mm-hmm. the same thing happens and, and you become attached, like neurobiochemically attached, um, neuro pathways are committed that are not easily redirected, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that become compulsive and, uh, yeah, it's it's really dark. <laughs> it's extremely dark. Yeah, which I think um, there's a section in that book, Wired for Intimacy, that talks about, is this actually an addiction like we think of a drug addiction? And it is really powerful to see how similar, um, yeah, those neuropathways are, are created. And we have, um, it's just really powerful to think that your brain is actually shaped by what you do. Anything else on this point? Um, I guess just in the, the personal aspect, um, thinking like of the spiritual damage that this causes as well. Um, you know, any sin, uh, can quickly translate to shame and makes us feel like we have to clean ourselves up before we can get to the Lord or before he can, um, be united to us. Mm. But I think sexual brokenness in general, but specifically pornography too, it just is such a, um, I mean, it, I think in, I often talk about the, I, th- I see the whole theme of scripture as union and reunion. Mm. So this idea that, um, we were created to be in union with the Lord and then pornography is just something that even like what we're talking about with our, our brains being changed to be united to, um, you know, s- sexual, a sexual act is kind of like a, a process of uniting to something. And so, um, I just think of just the damage that that causes spiritually when we unite ourselves to this sin mm. and then we think of ourselves so quickly too, too messy, too dirty for the Lord to, yeah. to break in and be redeemed or to redeem us. Yeah. That's a really good point. Well, let's turn to another one. Yeah. Um, another one we said we were just calling kind of grow and that's just kind of pursuing holistic discipleship or spiritual formation or whatever you want to call it. Pursuing Jesus with your whole self. Um, a lot of times um, when you're dealing with a sin like this, uh, it can be really easy to just focus all of your attention on it. But this, this is bad for a number of, a number of reasons. One, uh, there's this great quote uh, from David Pallison in one of his little books. Um, he said, Tom's fight with sin focused on just one thing, his struggle with pornography. But underlying that struggle was Tom's anger at God, self-pity, envy, and a hugely significant issue, his belief that God owed him a wife. Mm. Um, And often, I I know that was the experience for me, when I was in the midst of this struggle, it felt like it was the only sin I dealt with. I felt like, you know, if I could just overcome this one sin, like I would be this 
paragon of virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just not true. And it, and by relentlessly focusing on that, I didn't allow the Lord to, you know, shine lights on other areas of my life, other areas of sin, uh, to highlight areas of growth that were happening, mm-hmm. um, and so forth. And so there's just a real danger with kind of letting this be an all consuming thing. Yeah. Um, and, f- and fighting it, battling pornography is rarely going to be the result of just single-mindedly focusing in on it. It's, you, you kind of have to look up from the immediate struggle and fix your eyes on Jesus in pursuit of him just in general, just, just learning to follow him in community with others and search him out in the scriptures and prayer. And, um, we'll talk about some of these other things, some of these aspects of this more in, in more detail here in a second. A lot of what else is going to come kind of fits under this umbrella. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think I just add, um, even just that point of God owed him a wife. I think, um, you can quickly see this pornography is kind of like a symptom of a belief that it kind of, in, in my mind, I think of it as like a, an idolization of romance. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's at least in all of the stories that I have, um, walked through with, with women, especially, um, there is always something underlying. Um, I think pornography often is a coping strategy. It's something yep. that we, it's a terrible coping strategy, yep. but it's one that we look to for comfort and to kind of like deal with whatever things feel sad or hard or whatever. And we'll get into that more, but, um, yeah, to, to think of it as, a uh, just a holistic, this is, um, a part of my spiritual sanctification, I think is a huge help and a, and a better, a better mindset. Otherwise yeah. you're just kind of over and over again thinking, just stop, just stop, just stop. Yep. So, yep. yeah, good point. Other things will come from that for sure. Yeah. So the next one, I mean, very clearly flows out from that. And that's Mm -hmm. just the idea of sharing or inviting your community in. Mm -hmm. Um, As we've said before, sin just thrives and breeds in isolation. Yeah. Um, So opening yourself up to community of believers who know you and who know your struggles is super important. The confession of sin is often one of the most significant things and, 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 pathways to uh, finding freedom is mm-hmm. just being honest. Here's what I'm struggling with. And I need you to know this. And I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to encourage me. But, but it's not just about someone who can be like, Hey, did you do this again? You know, kind of harping on you. Uh, I mean, at its best accountability never sounds like that anyway, mm. but, um, but it's also people who can, who can know when you have victories, when you go mm-hmm. some time without giving in to the, to the temptation, whenever you do see growth in your life, that they can celebrate with you and spur you on and encourage you. Uh, oftentimes we, we think of this kind of confession and accountability thing solely in this like guilt inducing way. Yeah. And, and it's not meant to induce guilt in the least. Mm-hmm. It's meant to, uh, link you up with someone who can scaffold you and encourage you. Yeah. And I think there's so much, um, accountability, even in just the presence of others when they know what's going on. Um, I recently was listening or talking with a good friend. Um, we were roommates for a, a, sex, a couple of years and she, uh, we've talked a lot about just the accountability of another, pr- another person's presence. Um, but we were, she was reading or listening to this guy named Mike Foster and he gives the kind of illustration of, um, healthy vulnerability, a healthy, um, 
um, yeah, I guess vulnerability looks like it's almost like you have a house and that is, you need every, you need every room to have somebody in it. So maybe Mm. not everyone comes into the master bedroom, but everyone, um, or, but someone comes in. And so someone knows the deepest, most intimate aspects of what you're going through and walking through. I think it's really unhealthy that everyone would be in the bedroom, (laughs) but, um, we all need to have someone who's in that space, that most intimate, um, kind of scary space to let someone in. I thought that was a really good illustration for vulnerability. Yeah. You know, if you're married, maintaining a healthy and appropriate level of transparency with your spouse is super important. Mm. Um, Spouses can't be kept in the dark on these struggles. By the same token, most spouses don't find it helpful to get every gritty detail. Yeah. Honestly, probably nobody needs every gritty detail. Um, But, but, but they're, they're, different levels a spouse needs to know if you struggle with this you need to you need to confess mm-hmm. um it might be in in broad the broad strokes and you work with him or her to sort of and maybe a really good counselor honestly yeah. to figure out what's what's the appropriate amount to share um but you can never it's never wise to say well this would just hurt this person too badly so i just i shouldn't share that i'm struggling with this yeah um by the same token there are other people Perhaps, and and generally it's going to be, I mean, I probably feel pretty confident saying as a rule, men should share these kinds of things with men and women with women. Mm. Um, Yeah. But for for girls to get, find a gal that you really trust and is mature Mm -hmm. and um, is willing to kind of go on this journey with you and just confess everything. Yeah. I think a lot of the stories that I've um, had with women, uh, specifically like spouses or women who are not necessarily personally struggling, but who are walking through things with someone else, um, especially wives walking through things with their husband. I've heard and seen a lot of damage actually from there's this kind of gut reaction of when you hear, um, it's sort of this, uh, desire to know everything. I just need Mm -hmm. you to tell me everything. And I think, um, I guess I just, yeah, caution. I mean, that needs to be spoken to somebody, but I do, I I think I would just definitely recommend, um, pausing, questioning like why that needs to, why you need to know the details and then walking through something like that with a counselor, um, that can be really, really powerful and helpful to kind of have someone else in that space, helping you walking through something like that, that they've walked through with people before. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. We can maybe end this section with this. There's this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in life together. He says, Mm -hmm. the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light in confession. The light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Which I just would add to, um, sometimes I think like I've seen a lot of people want to, they want to get some traction in their recovery process before they let someone in. Yeah. But I, 
just have seen that again and again be the thing that prevented them from coming sooner. Just perpetuates the whole thing. Exactly. So I just would say, yeah, invite your community in, even in the downward spiral. And then maybe that is what will, what will be the, the change. Yeah. Great point. Um, well, let's move on to our th- kind of, what is this, third, fourth? I, I'm losing track. <laughs> Wherever you guys keep, keep track at home. Um, which is guard mm-hmm. or implementing practical safeguards. Yeah. And so uh, there's kind of this truism that lots of addiction recovery groups and research um, acknowledge that people are especially vulnerable to relapse from addictions when they're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or sad. You can little acronym HALTS. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sad. (laughs) It makes you want to say HALT, but it's HALTS. HALTS. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you can't help but being those things at some point. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. You're going to be hungry. Yeah. There's in many contexts, there's nothing wrong with being angry. You're going to get angry. You're going to get lonely, tired. You're going to get sad. Um, but you need to know when those things come, you're going to be particularly vulnerable to relapsing, particularly vulnerable to turning to these habits that you've built up. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the most important things that men and women can do is to build safeguards into their life so mm-hmm. that when, you know, you might think one day, oh man, I don't have any desire to do this. I feel freedom. And that's awesome. But you don't want to bank on feeling that way all the time because you're not going to feel that way all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and hard situations are going to come and you're going to be driven back to these habits. And so one of the things that I had to do, um, one of the things that I encourage lots of people to do is take a serious in-depth inventory of when, why, where, how you struggle. And maybe there's some more W questions in there too. Um, <laughs> but, but basically what times a day, what devices, I mean, let's just imagine for most people, it's going to be on a computer or a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't have your computer with you, wh- what device would you turn to? What have you turned to in the past? Mm-hmm. Okay. If it's, you don't have your phone, you can turn to your laptop. If you didn't have your laptop, what you turn, what would you turn to? Someone might say, well, I guess my Xbox can access the internet. Okay. Uh, the Xbox. Okay. Then where else? And, and you basically identify all the potential channels and you just start closing them one by one. For some that's going to be things like accountability software or Mm -hmm. like firewalls, blockers for things. Mm -hmm. And we have a list of, of ones that are helpful here on the, on the document. Um, there's things built into iPhones that can pretty comprehensively block apps and block websites and so forth. Um, things like Disney circle that can kind of lock down your whole Wi-Fi and even your mobile internet. Mm. Um, but basically, basically just closing the doors and a lot of people, for a lot of people, this gets really scary because they're like, well, I mean, there's no way I could do that. I, I I'm too tech minded. I could get around any blocker mm. you put up on my smartphone. I mean, this raises the question, do you really need a smartphone? Yeah. So, well, I have to have it for work. I don't know. Well, do you, mm-hmm. I mean, could you figure out another way? Could there be uh, just getting this radical about saying, I'm going to like in the words of Jesus, I'm going to cut off the hand. I'm going to do take the extreme measure to make sure that in a moment of weakness, I can't turn back to this. Um, that allows you to find a period of detox and, and that can be the thing that Mm kickstarts a real healing journey. And a lot of those, um, programs that we're talking about have an accountability software built in so that someone's being notified 
when, you know, um, sites that may be more questionable are being pulled up. So I think a lot of times I I've heard like, but I need to have my computer for work, for school or for whatever. Um, I think that's kind of a, a you know, it's like a hundred or one or nothing. It's gotta be, um, you can, you can download yeah. programs and sites that will help you. Um, so I think that's helpful, but I also was g- just going to say too, um, I think that's such a good point, Cameron, of kind of taking an inventory of what devices, um, or what things are causing me to struggle. I think, um, it's just as helpful to take an inventory of when am I struggling? So I had a, um, there's a story of uh, a young lady that I walked through uh, her struggle with pornography and it kind of became obvious at some point that it was always a certain time of day that she was struggling. Um, and we kind of just dug into that a little bit. Why is it happening during this time? How can we bring someone's presence into that time so that it's not um, no longer a temptation or at least that there's, there's someone that's aware that this is the time that um, might be hardest for you. And then even just locationally, maybe you don't need your own room during that time. Um, That's a great point. So yeah, just, just making, I think uh, I like the word safeguards, putting some safeguards, making a plan so that when those temptations come, you have, um, you have an escape plan already, already laid out. Yeah. That's such a great point. I feel like I just keep saying that to you over and over again, but it's true. <laughs> well, and I think just even for my, I mean, my personal story with, um, I've struggled a lot with anxiety over the years and my, um, my counselor in college just asked me like, I need you to start a caffeine journal. <laughs> so I was uh, basically tasked with every time I take, I drink coffee or tea or whatever, um, or a diet Coke, I need to write that down and then also be tracking when do I feel the most anxious. And it became really obvious to me pretty quickly how I was just pa- basically pouring acid on this fire for myself mm. of anytime I struggled with anxiety, if I was already over caffeinated, it just made it that much harder for, for me, yeah. or I just felt those symptoms so much sooner. So I think it's kind of a similar process for um, anytime we're struggling with something, we need to like understand and be self-aware enough to see what are the things that are causing that and how can I like give my, make it a little easier from easier for myself. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, kind of dovetailing with this is our next point, which is joining, mm-hmm. um, or committing to a strategic group or program. Um, some people have tried these and found them a little, unhelpful for whatever reason, but others have, have found incredible success. And this Mm -hmm. has been the thing that's brought them freedom. This is the the avenue the Lord has used, uh, to, to break the habit. And so, um, there's all kinds of different, like intentional recovery programs. Um, and they're definitely worth considering at door of hope. We have things like Genesis or mending the soul groups, our change groups can be really good avenues for working through, a struggle with pornography. A lot of people have used them for that. Mm. Um, and I think part of the timing of, um, Cameron and I wanted to do this or this podcast, um, before we started the fall, because that's when a lot of these programs will start up and we just want people to be able to, you know, if this is a serious problem, sign up, you know, if it doesn't help. Okay. But if it does, um, you'll be so glad. Mm hmm. 
And then there's other kinds of groups. Uh, there's lots of churches. Door of Hope doesn't have any that meet at our church, but in the Portland metro area, there's things like 423 communities. We have a link to that on the document mm. uh, that are small groups you know, built around accountability with pornography. Mm. Um, there's people from Door of Hope that are involved in these kind of different churches around yeah. the city. Um, Pure Desire groups is similar. The Fortify program, I think, is an all-online thing that you kind of get hooked up with people and community online and comes with its own app that does all kinds of things to lock down your your devices. Mm. Um, So there's Mm. different options, and different ones may be more or less attractive or seem more or less helpful to different people. Uh, But we would strongly encourage anybody who who feels just totally dominated by this sin to consider doing something like this for a year. Yeah. And I would say, especially for someone who maybe doesn't have relationships that come to mind when they think about who could I talk to about accountability? I think these are really helpful ways to start to build that, um, accountability network and that relational network. So yeah, I would just definitely, um, encourage people to sign up. Yeah. Well, we're getting close. We've just got yeah. a couple more. Two more. Um, and they, they're they similar, uh, but maybe have slightly different focuses. But the first we just said is, is love, is this focus on what's more beautiful. Um, this kind of goes into one of the points we made earlier, but you, know, you probably heard this thing. Like, let's say you want somebody to not think about an elephant. Mm. If you tell them, hey, don't think about an elephant. Hannah, don't think about an elephant. <laughs> I'm thinking of an elephant. You think of an <laughs> elephant immediately. Exactly. Um, which just sort of illustrates, uh, if, if you want someone to not think about an elephant, you don't just say, hey, don't think about an elephant. You put something different in front of them. Mm-hmm. You you give them a vision for something else. Um, and that's kind of, I think, a huge part of, of growth in Christ. It's It's allowing your heart and your mind to focus on Jesus himself and his goodness and his grace and his love for you and his mercy for you and the fact that while you were still sinners, he died for you. Um, Mm. It's so beautiful. And and it's, but it's, it's not just focusing on Jesus, but also learning to fall in love with everything that's genuinely good and genuinely true and genuinely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Reminding, I've just, I'll just read this. I wrote this and it's, I'm just going to read it because why not? It's good. Uh, <laughs> as we remind ourselves of the goodness of God, the God we serve and the radical generosity of the gospel, as we let our affection for our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ wash over us. And as we intentionally cultivate our love for our spouses, we will find it much easier to forget about pornography. Mm. Um, yeah. Replacing... It's, it's what Thomas uh, Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection, replacing an old affection with something that's better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's Christ and all the things that, all the good things, the genuinely uncorruptedly good things that he, that he brings. Yeah. There's a, um, I mean, we've seen a lot that pornography can be quickly related to depression. It's kind of a deadening again and again and again of other senses. And so just like that rat, just returning to pornography and losing sight of everything else that is good in in their little cage. Mm -hmm. Um, but for myself, there was a season where I struggled a lot with, um, it was just kind of a depressing season. And so I, um, found myself, um, 
well, there was a quote that I that I heard from C.S. Lewis at that time that just became, it is probably my favorite quote of all time. All right. Let's um, hear it. Yes. I'm going to butcher it because I it don't memorized? have it totally memorized. It's quite uh, long, but. <laughs> it's not memorized. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's just this idea that pleasures are shafts of glory as it strikes our sensibility. Mm. Um, so the idea that that pleasure, you know, whatever it is, um, C.S. Lewis talks about the crispness of an apple. Um, that is a shaft of glory. This idea that um, he then goes on to talk about gratitude says very well. Um, Thank you, Lord, for giving me this apple. But adoration is much more. And it says, um, what must be the quality of that being who's far off and momentary coruscation, which is like the glinting of a diamond who's far off and momentary coruscation is such as this one's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And so it's mm, this beautiful. That's so good. Yeah. And then he talks about, um, I've tried therefore since to make every pleasure a channel of adoration. So this mm. idea that all of the things that we experience in this world that are pleasurable, they're pleasurable because they are, are hints and glimpses of God's glory. Yeah. And surely like C.S. Lewis talks about, we can take things, um, we can take pleasures in sinful acts. Um, but when we recognize the, the source of that pleasure, it just becomes this like beautiful, reawakening to God's glory all around us. And so, um, I guess I just think of when we say like love, focus on what's more beautiful, focus on like the source of that pleasure and how can we seek to experience him all day in the different pleasures that we have all around us. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really good. C.S. Lewis always says the best. He's the best. (laughs) He's the best. Um, and then the last one I think is very closely tied to this, but we called it embolden or just remembering the shame killing gospel. Um, maybe we should say first, like porn's relational and social consequences. They don't just evaporate mm. all of a sudden. Um, if you're like a, a close friend or maybe a spouse of someone who's struggling, um, mm. we know that like this pro- probably just a painful conversation regardless to listen to. Um, and like there's deep attachment wounds that, that happen to you when a loved one discloses like mm-hmm. I've been using porn and that, that does not go away overnight. Yeah. Um, that it's real. Uh, so we, we want to acknowledge like the real pain and kind of wreckage and like, like, like turning and repenting from porn after a lifetime of use doesn't undo like all the ad revenue that you gave mm. to this like barbarous industry. Yeah. So, th- so there, there's, there's real consequence to our sin that doesn't just get swept under the rug and all these things can produce just a deep sense of shame. Mm. And I think that words come up a couple of times in this conversation, but, yeah. um, shame that that's feeling there, that sense that you're somehow because of what you've done unworthy, um, undeserving of God's love or anyone else's love that somehow your, your personhood is irrevocably damaged. Um, mm-hmm. we could talk about shame in all kinds of different ways, but you know, it when you feel it and though the consequences of sin take time to unravel, um, shame can be dealt with mm-hmm. in an instant. Mm. shame is not part of God's plan. Shame is not God's strategy for chastening you. Um, it's frankly demonic and and untrue. Um, the gospel declares that, look, 
I love the way I love the way Tim Keller Tim Keller used to say this all the time when he was preaching, but he says the gospel's this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. So to comment on that, like mm-hmm. our sin really is more grievous than mm-hmm. we often even imagine or even yeah. capable of imagining. Then he says, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hope. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says he, he came, he, he came for the sick, mm-hmm. not the healthy. Um, he, the whole gospel is meant to drive us back to the fact that though every one of us is a sinner, he loves us profoundly and deeply and unchangeably. Um, and you are not disqualified from his love, um, Mm -hmm. because of any sin. Yeah. This summer, or this last year when we were at the women's retreat, we focused on Psalm 139. Um, and I love in this, you can see this, it's David writing and he starts with talking about the Lord, knowing him. And at first there's kind of like, we were talking about, um, it kind of feels like invasive, almost like invading my privacy. Like, you know, things about me that make me uncomfortable. And so at first David kind of is giving off this tone of like, Ugh, I'm, I'm almost uncomfortable with how much you know me. But by the end, he's asking the Lord, come search me, know me. And I just think it's this beautiful transformation of when we truly understand and know how much Jesus actually does know us. It's kind of scary and it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable and no part of it feels good because of the ugly things that we don't let anybody see. But then when we actually believe that he does love us, not, you know, he just, he loves us <laughs> yeah. and nothing we can do change, changes that. Then suddenly it becomes this, I want to, I want to be better for you. So come in, search my heart, know me, rid everything that displeases you. Um, it's this beautiful kind of like idea of the gospel right there in Psalm 139. Yeah, that's so good. And this enables us too to do all kinds of things that we wouldn't feel equipped to do. Like a lot of what we've talked about involves like getting in groups, opening yourself up to accountability. It's letting the church be the church in your life, even in the midst of this struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to remember, like, if what we're saying is true, if the Bible is true, if if the gospel is true, then the God of the universe has already. If if you're in Him, if you've placed your trust in Him, and He saved you. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets Mm. even more intimately than even you do. Mm. He has looked you in the eye and he said, I still choose you. Mm -hmm. I still love you. I still want you. I've still saved you. I still have good in store for you. I still want to use you. And the list goes on. If that's true, and we really believe it, that frees us up to do all these other things. It's it's only when we really get that reality that we can turn to a neighbor and, and be honest. You have to really believe deep down, like, I'm already accepted by the one person that matters. Yeah. I'm already accepted by the judge of the universe. Mm-hmm. I'm creator. already accepted by the perfectly holy one. I can let this guy know. Yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. I can let Brandon down the street know. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything to fear. He might react poorly. She might react poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bummer uh, if, if that happens. But that's probably not what's going to happen. But even if it did... The God of the universe has declared you his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, There's a story that I'll kind of just end with, if that's okay. Um, I was watching, or actually, I did, I've never seen the movie Moneyball, but I know there's a scene in it um, that refers to a true story 
that I just think is so poignant. And, uh, I was talking about it with my friend this weekend. Um, but it's this, this story of this catcher who's kind of a bigger guy. So he's kind of known for being slow. Um, and he, he hits, uh, he hits uh, the ball. <laughs> this is baseball. Did he I say that? The ball. Okay. <laughs> I'm really not a sports person <laughs> in this. I mean, yeah, whatever. I can hold my own football, but not baseball, baseball. either. <laughs> Um, anyway, so he hits the ball and, uh, he runs and he feels like this is pretty good. I'm going to, I'm going to round first base and keep going, make it a double. And so he, which he never did. And so he's kind of notorious, um, for not getting a ton of runs because he's, um, slow anyway. So he hits the ball. Um, and as he's rounding first base to his horror, he trips and he falls on his belly and so in this like desperate, you can see actually the, there's a, you can YouTube this, um, his name is Jeremy Brown, but he falls and kind of desperately turns around and starts army crawling on his belly back to first base. Um, and you can just kind of see he's, he's desperate just to be safe, just to be safe, safe. Um, but then as he's crawling, the first baseman leans down and whispers something or says something to him. And then later you find out that basically what the first baseman told him is, man, get up, keep running. You, you hit it 60 feet past the fence. And so it's this kind of cool idea that, um, that catcher, he was just desperate to get back to first base to be safe, but little did he know he'd already hit it out of the park. And I think for us as Christians, that's just such a good example. It's such a good illustration of sometimes like the very small minded, um, ways that we think about one, you know, I just want to be done with this sin. I just want to be done with this one sin, but the Lord has already dealt with all of ours. And so it just gives us kind of that confidence. Um, I know Josh has been talking a lot lately. He's been quoting sin boldly, Mm -hmm. this idea that, um, not that we should sin more, but that grace is sufficient for everything that we could ever do. And so, um, just kind of trusting in that grace. So, I just thought it was a valid and, and worthy sermon yeah. illustration. We should steal it before someone else does. Yeah, so it's claimed right now. <laughs> Somebody else tries to use that. Leadership podcast. Well, maybe you or me can use it. No one else. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really good. And sadly, I do think we're out of time, but that's a wonderful note to end on. Mm. Um, well, we hope this has been a helpful conversation. Yeah. Um, we know it's just scratching the surface of lots of things. We might do a sequel or two to this to discuss kind of some other angles on this. But for now, um, let's just start talking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do no one ourselves included any favors by pretending that this isn't a massive problem, even in the church. Uh, and yet we don't want to stay there. We want to trust that Jesus has good for us and offers us freedom and can actually change our lives. Uh, but oftentimes that, that requires us to, trust him and trust him by opening up to other people as well. Mm -hmm. And I know I speak for Cameron myself. If, if this is something that you're struggling with and you have, um, I mean, our biggest, I think push is tell someone. Yeah. Um, and if that is us, tell, tell us, we'd be happy to grab a coffee with you and, um, just pray with you and try to kind of think through some of these things. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Hannah, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Cameron. Of course. To everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. Bye.